Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central. Only on PBS. Hello, my name is Dave Hanrady and there will be no encore, but there will be a revisit as we travel back to the year 1984, the year of my birth, a very, very special time, and also a special time perhaps in Irish music, certainly in world music for sure. Uh, to celebrate this grand occasion, I am joined today by Selena Murphy of the Irish Daily Star and Buzz.ie. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. You're so welcome. We also have James Byrne, who has banged the drums for various efforts across the years, including Villagers, Soak, and many more. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. And we also have Eamon Sweeney of Hot Press, Irish Independent, The Quietus, and uh, some sick DJ skills as well. Oh, you? Thank you very much. That's very flattering of you. But well, I'm very well. Pleasure to be here. And of course, uh, Kieran McGuinness of Delorento's fame is also with us. How are you, sir? What, what's up, man? Not a lot, man. Cool. <laughs> uh, 84 was a big year for music, particularly across the world. And what else was happening in, in general pop culture terms? Um, well, pop culture, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom. Gremlins, Beverly Hills Cop, Karate Kid. I mean, the films of you know, you the, you know the eighties came out that year. It seems, but um, Terms of Endearment won the Oscar randomly. I don't know anything about that. Apparently, it's a weepy. It's devastating. Yeah, yeah, it's devastating that it won, or it's devastating. it's devastating picture. Deborah okay. Winger, you know, it's garbage. <laughs> um, I haven't seen it in a long time. And then uh, the LA Olympics, Yugoslavia was the the Winter Summer Olympics. Um, AIDS was first identified. The first Apple Mac MTV Awards started. Band Aid happened. You know, mm. tons of stuff like that. And then, and albums, Reckoning REM, Van Halen in 1984. 
uh, personal favorite of Selena, uh, Wham, make, make it big. Oh, so good. Wow. Uh, born in the USA, Sade, or Sade, Sade? Sade. 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 lean into it. We all have a different Shit. pronunciation of it, I think, kind of likely. Yeah, so uh, Sade, Diamond Life, and um, then loads and loads of Irish albums. Any other albums that I missed there? You see the yeah. replacements? Let it be by the replacements. Okay, awesome. Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minute Man. My War by Black Flag. I Pur- didn't have any. Purple Rain, Prince of the yeah. Revolution. Oh, sorry. Purple Rain is 1984 and Ride the Lightning by Metallica. Metallica. Yeah. Smith's Hot Full of Hollow, or did you say that? Hot Full of Hollow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that'd be a big one for me. Right. Hot Full of, is that, that's a B-side though, right? Technically, yes, but like any, like the Smiths never put out any bad material. Like even all the B-sides, mm. the quality control was just sensational. And it's essentially cobbled together peel sessions, but it just flows like an album. It's, it, it's absolutely extraordinary. And... Um, I think it's kind of rightly regarded almost as an album in its own right. But even the other Smiths compilations like uh, um, The World Won't Listen and um, Louder Than Bombs. I would think that's amazing because yeah. they seem to have an album every year and they'd yeah. have their own yeah. album and then they'd have like a, you know, B-Sides album. Yeah. This is the thing, you know, because of, um, you know, the way the internet, uh, you know, the way the internet has ruined music for everyone. <laughs> the way, you know, releasing doesn't happen anymore. You know, that kind of... <clears throat> the need to have a physical thing out sure you know it's and that would be the first time you'd hear because obviously now everyone's b-sides are you know you can hear them whenever you want or they're on kind of bleeds into one really yeah Yeah. it's uploaded onto youtube or whatever and it's not like a physical thing but anyway yeah it was an embarrassment to riches uh across the board if you just look up 1984 on wikipedia it's absolutely stacked and granted they would pick the most notable entries but it's quite ridiculous on the home front though kier we have five albums on this shortlist and a couple of surprises that didn't quite make it where should we start uh, well, uh, I'll go through <laughs> the, the five albums. We have The Pogues, Red Roses for me, their debut. We had Micro Disney, Disney. Uh, Everybody is Fantastic, their debut. We had um, Man on the Line by Christa Berg, his seventh album. We had Silent Running, Shades of Liberty, their first album. And then we had a band from Northside Dublin, a four-piece called U2, The Unforgettable Fire. Revisit regulars, you too. You really should, we should be we should be paying them. They should be paying us. Stage, yeah. should be paying something. <laughs> I tried. I tried to bring in some some Christy Moore here, but it didn't didn't quite happen. Well, Christy Moore was your your choice, and uh, you were d- devastated. You were saying I was devastated. No, Christy Moore because like the whole point of the revisit. Well, one of the points of the revisit is to look at stuff that you might otherwise have either dismissed or not really spent too much time with. And I can't say I'm the biggest Christy Moore guy. I mean, if if there's a trad session happening in a pub, I'm probably the guy that's nearest the exit. Uh, even though I respect it greatly, it's just not quite my thing. And uh, yeah, the Christian Moore album, I gave it a go. Did my best. It has its moments, you know, right on to Belter. But uh, overall, I don't know. I mean, like, like it's it hasn't converted me, but I can see totally why it would be poetry to some people. And I, but I will say, I'm surprised it didn't make it, and I'm kind of a little bit sad it didn't make it because I think it would have kind of given us a bit more flavour. But then again, there's a bit of an underlying theme to this episode which surprised me. But we'll get there when we get there. Well, I, I was really surprised. It was, it's a weird, weird year, 1994. It was a weird year in Irish music. There was a lot of U2 going on. There was Silent Running, which is like the Nordy um, Simple Minds U2. Um, they got in. And then there was Zero One, which is the gothy, you know, version of U2, which didn't get in. I, I think maybe that's a bit reductive. But it, the reality is that sound, that early 80s sound, that so many bands are doing it's like represented so Silent Running got the other <laughs> version of U2 in and Zero One didn't but some Zero One some of their songs sounded 
you know, very, very U2. Well, you sound like an expert, so we should probably start there. Uh, let's have a listen to what you two well, sound like. We, before oh. we do, can, can I just throw in that Otto DeFay didn't get in? And I thought that was a, a, an interesting album. It was kind of weird. It was like a, a Danish Irish band, oh, sorry, a, a Dutch Irish band called Otto DeFay. They almost nothing online, very, very little, but you could patch together an album from uh, YouTube videos and, you know, things like that, you know, other links or whatever. And uh, Phil Linnett was involved. He sang in two songs. I think he produced a couple of songs. And you know something? I don't know if it was better than than what we have in the list, but it was, you know, sort of interesting anyway, you know? Hmm. Well, now you know how I feel about Christy Moore. So there you go. <laughs> uh, but we'll get, to, we'll get to the Unforgettable Fire, which sounds like this. Pride in the name of love, you two. Uh, are they the best version of you two then from that year, Kier? Yes, um, I don't know, but it's. I think um, I think it's a really it's a better album than I thought. Uh, looking into the history of it, it's really interesting. So it's their fourth album, and it's after kind of War and Boy and October, which I suppose were kind of reasonably standard rock records, I suppose, and um, written about themselves and their own lives, you know. In, I think War has Gloria on it, which has got Bible verses in it. October has got, you know, their own kind of, uh, uh, um, that's about their own struggles or whatever. All those kind of songs are about themselves. And they started with Sunday Bloody Sunday kind of getting a bit political. But then you get to this album and it's it was recorded in Slane Castle. Um, it's got two songs for MLK. There's, the title is about, you know, the Hiroshima the bombs in, in Hiroshima Nagasaki you know Pride in the Name of Love obviously MLK as well and lots of songs either mentioning America like Elvis and America <laughs> or or like stuff about it so they're starting to look outside they're starting to change their sound they're, they're trying to develop and I think it's a really I don't know it's an interesting album I was reading about Eno the Edge really wanted to work with Brian Eno and Brian Eno was having none of it and they played you know they were like we'll play him under a blood red sky you know the concert f- uh, film and uh, his eyes glazed over apparently and he was having none of it and also there's a quote from Adam Clayton who said we were looking to do something more arty and I think <laughs> saying, you know the indistinct nature of saying that you want to do something more arty but they got him in and I think his you know what he does is all over it so and there's some brilliant songs and Unforgettable Fire is a brilliant song I don't really know that song and it's absolutely brilliant mm-hmm. MLK is a gorgeous song and there's a song called Indian Summer Sky which actually is uh, just a revelation. I never, I never heard it before. It's absolutely brilliant. And then, of course, there's pride in the name of love, which just overshadows everything. Yeah, I mean, like it overshadows everything to the point where I wonder, you know, to use the obvious kind of pun, is this a forgettable U two album? Like in terms Ooh. of their entire canon? It probably, it could be. I, I, I like, I was surprised by how little of the songs. You know, you think you'd know. Um, well, I would assume that I would know a lot of U two songs. I almost, I knew pride and I knew bad, which are both from this album. And to be honest with you, I didn't, like, other than that, I knew nothing. And it was kind of weird because, yeah, you just expect to know. You just expect to know a load of the, you know, 
the actual songs on the U2 album. Like Off by Heart type thing? It's anyway, more, more of a kind of moody, like it's a very kind of rich, moody, kind of ambient kind of record almost in places. And like you can really, the Brian Eno and uh, Daniel Ann Watt thing are, like really comes to the surface. Like it's probably the most textured U2 album I can think of. And what I really like about it, it is refreshing. With with probably the exception, of course, with a, with pride and maybe bad, it's a, it's probably the least bombastic U two album you'll ever hear. I totally agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Um, and for what's worth, I, it's a record I, I really really liked. I remember actually kind of, whatever. Well, I would have been too young to have heard it when it came out, but I remember kind of a few years later it being played to me, and it certainly wouldn't have been the would have would have been one of the first rock records that I was aware of. And uh, I know all the hype this year is about the Joshua Tree and coming to Crow Park and all that kind of stuff. But for what it's worth, I'd, I'd, I'd prefer this one. I prefer Octone Baby and I prefer Boy. And a lot, a lot of the other U2 stuff leaves me pretty cold, to be honest. But that's my tuppence worth. Uh, yeah, I, I think it, of all their albums, to me, it's one that kind of works best as a record from start to finish. It doesn't have as many kind of hits as Joshua Tree, I guess. Um, they definitely sound a little less desperate on it than the first three. I think they got to a certain level of success. Saw America, thought, well, we don't have to try as hard to make it. We're making it. Let's chill out a bit. Let's kind of make music for ourselves a bit more. But I think I kind of I think it might be it and maybe Joshua or it and uh, Octane Baby from my favorite YouTube records. But again, it's like I think if you were seventeen, eighteen in the mid eighties in Ireland and you had a band making a record like that and it was suddenly the biggest thing, it would be huge. I can see why generationally they're such a big band for a lot of people. But to me, obviously, I was like two or three years old when it came out. Yeah. You don't you miss that and then it's coming to you second hand, like you gotta hear this record is incredible and maybe the impact of it is lost because it, it doesn't seem like as big a deal. It's just a it's a good record, it's a good rock record and you get the fact that it, no Irish band had kinda of gotten that big before, but uh, I think a lot of the kind of legendary status it and a lot of their kind of mid eighties records have is because at the time, it was such a big deal. It was so unusual. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I've seen documentaries about the making of it, it and Joshua Tree and stuff, and it seems like they were actually really into making the album. They really enjoyed the process. Well, it's interesting it's because, like, I think it's, I think it's, is it MLK? I'm pretty sure is the first track, a sort of homecoming, slow down loads, and then uh-huh. you know it's it's Bono singing over it, you know, and like you know a kind of a groove from from from, from Larry, and then they have Elvis. And America, which is Bono kind of, you know, it's just singing over like music, you know. Now it sounds, it sounds it's funny because it sounds quite loose at times. And as well, the Fourth of July, which is a, which is uh, an instrumental on the album, was written in the studio just, you know, while they were jamming it. So it's kind of, I know, it's like it's kind of cool to hear that, you know, like this. As I say, Elvis in America, that song does sound a bit all over the shop. It doesn't sound very together. It's kind of waffly and a bit meandery. And but it's kind of it's good that they hear that because now you imagine that a U two album is so is so poured over you know I can't yeah, imagine yeah, you know yeah, all yeah, everything yeah, yeah. they do is so poured but they were over. still on on the on on the kind of on the come up yeah. you know and and only on the Joshua Tree did they become the biggest band in the world and when they got there they're so afraid of not being there anymore they just frantically it started sounding really thirsty again and really like we got to keep our position and all the music made after that even Octone Bay which is a great record it still has that. You know, we can't lose our position, guys. We have to keep being the biggest band in the world. And eventually now it's petered out because they just yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. grew up. But at the time, yeah. it doesn't sound like a record made by a band that is trying to stay in the position. It still sounds like they're trying to discover themselves a bit and kind of branch out. 
Okay, um, Joshua Tree is a very different sound of record, though. I think Joshua Tree, on the success of Unforgettable Fire, they became massive or more more massive, especially in America. I can hear a lot of that, though. I mean, it's, I never thought of this before, but I, I, I just from looking at the first three, you can really take the first three albums as a block, you know, of, as uh-huh. of a, of a world, and then the next three albums, which is this one, Joshua Tree and Rattling Home, yeah. are in a yeah. similar world, and then you could go again for the next three, which is. Action ba- Baby and uh, Zuropa and um, Pop. Pop. You, know, you could say yeah. the more European is. almost. Yeah, if you like in a way. Yeah, I mean, trilogy, I don't, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure. But the middle tree are real American sound. Yeah, this, this is, is a very. This is like. This is the beginning. Let's of that. sell records in America. It's exactly. m- we get, we're going to get richer, boys, and and that's. But that's the other thing. As great a band as they are, they're they're, you know, they want a bit of money. They want to be like. There's no. There's no shame in that. Yeah. They of like, play the let's be bigger. What can we do to become a bigger band? And not necessarily a better band let's be bigger first and better maybe comes slightly secondary and Joshua Tree definitely it's like let's be bigger Selena what's your relationship with you two well I wasn't born in 1984 well you know we can't all have that distinction but yeah I mean <laughs> Dave that, that, that's kind of your thing Dave um, <laughs> I've realised that you two are just like wallpaper to me like I when I was born my brother had all these U2 albums in the house and bought probably every subsequent U2 album and even when I was listening to Unforgettable Fire for this podcast, I was finding myself like trying to force myself to have opinions. And my opinions were like, this is a very u 2 song. And Bono sounds so Bono-y here. Ballad, like, ballad, I think yeah. it's actually one of those things where they've been so omnipresent in my life that I'm like mm. barely able to react. Mm. Um, I felt that it was quite mixed for me. There were some songs where I was like, oh, OK, I, I, could, I could see liking this. And there was some songs where I was like, this has to be filler. Everyone listening to this has to be identifying it as filler. But I mean, I might be completely incorrect. No, I actually think I think it's I think there's a couple of clear fillers in it. But I think that's okay. It's nice to hear filler on a U2 album. I kind of feel like later on, everything is just really kind of thought about, you know, Mm -hmm. so in that way, it's kind of good to hear them experiment. They do feel kind of loose on it or like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something organic about it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Isn't it weird though that that was their fourth album? If that was a band today, they would have been dropped after their first record because it didn't sell a lot. And it took them, yeah, it took them like four, like five albums to become the biggest band in the world, and that was over whatever six years. And nowadays, like it just wouldn't happen. They wouldn't, YouTube wouldn't have existed because after was Island a a big label? Yeah, Yeah. when did they signed? Grace Jones to Bob Marley to um, so they would have been pressure on them. yeah. Yeah, but they were obviously like, okay, guys, it's growing, it's growing, but like. First, first album, it, it had done what it did like nowadays in kind of in the same kind of scale. They might not have been given a second record. It might not have even come out. You can imagine it just coming out in Ireland. and We'll see how it do, does, boys. Whereas <laughs> ne- th- at that stage, it was like three albums in. Then keep going. It's growing. We like it. The, it's building. Records are selling. You, you need to develop. They only developed into the band they were going to be like four or five albums in and. It's insane to think what would have happened if you two had been dropped after the first album yeah. and sure. maybe broken yeah, up. And what yeah. would have happened to the great what if is like, what if you two hadn't taken over the 80s? Where's Irish music now without this giant like Zeppelin hanging over the Irish music scene? Bigger, big bands at the time in, in America, especially, were like kind of rock and roll bands trying to be kind of edgy and dangerous. And you two are like, you can bring them home to your parents, kind of band, really nice, like. <laughs> They read the Bible. They're not going to. They never get in fights. None of them drink yeah. heavily. Yeah. They're clean cut boys, and you know that's it's more acceptable. You know, and they, in a similar way to like I guess a modern man like Munford and Sons or something have all of that as well. And it's just 
it's not going to scare you. It's easy to get. It's easy to understand. And, you know, maybe they knew that as well. Like, look, we have something to offer us not being edgy rock stars. Let's play up the normalness and the, the purity of what we're doing. It's a really good point. And when you think about it, when they became rock stars, it was actually, it was more, it was the, the irony thing. It was, it was the McFisto. It was Zoo TV. It yeah. was... It was all kind of like acting a, 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 the fantasy of being a rock star rather than actually being a rock star mm. and getting arrested like one of the Gallagher brothers or, what, or whatever. Like nowadays, like you, have an, you have an idea of if a band is good or if a band is hip or cool. Were, I, I'm sure in the early 80s, you two were seen as a, a hip band or were they? I don't know if you two were ever like a band people were like, will admit to being into if they're kind of cool musicians. Whereas I'm sure by this time, people are looking at them as this kind of unhip band and and maybe they just embrace us like we're never going to be cool lads but we're going to be massive well as ever it's impossible to talk about you two without getting too into Bono but uh, Ireland has a history of producing unique showmen one of whom is named Chris Berg. Man the line, and I'm glad I didn't go full Alan Partridge with my Christopher intro there, which I could easily have done. Uh, Selena Murphy is Christopher, you know, worth comparing to Bono? Is he, you know, a kind of a really gigantic showman in his own right? And also, is there more to the man than Lady in Red? Is the real question I would ask. First question, I would say, dear Lord, I don't know. <laughs> um, and the second question, I would say, yes. Because, so I had pretty much only heard Lady in Red that I could name off the top of my head as Christopher record. And I looked at this on our long list of albums and I thought, like, simultaneously, I won't like this and I will definitely like this. Um, I won't like this because Lady in Red is awful. Um, In my opinion, I once got into a taxi wearing a red dress and the taxi man actually reached over me to get into the glove compartment to take out Christa Berg's CD to put it on. Jesus Christ. So I have a personal aversion (laughs) to the song. Sorry if anyone listening was it Christa (laughs) Berg. Oh my God, it was. Um, uh, Yeah, so I was like, I'm probably not going to like this. And on the other hand, I've had like a warming of the heart towards kind of man-led like schmaltz pop over the past couple of years like the Neil Sedakas and the Barry Manilow's so I thought you know what maybe I will like this and I ended up loving it like really loving this um it's not like a very cool um album it's not very consistent it's not perfect it's 10 tracks it's 40 minutes long it's really neat Mm -hmm. and what I think has happened here is somebody has come along and cherry-picked like the best things about Christa Berg and put them all really like comfortably on one album. And I realised that when I started thinking, I like Man on the Line. Maybe I'll like Christa Berg's other 80s material. I don't. <laughs> um, I certainly don't. Um, and I kind of have this theory. There's um, a guy who worked on Man on the Line. He's the arranger. He plays synths, keys, orchestral arrangement and produced the whole album. And he's called Rupert Hine. I haven't heard of him before, but he worked with people like Rush and Underworld, really random list of people. Um, and he 
worked on this album with Chris and the previous one, The Getaway, which is the only other album that I found any songs of Chris that I actually liked. Previous so album. I feel like this guy, I mean, sorry, Chris, if I'm not giving you any credit for the album I'm saying I really like that you made, but I think this guy might have come along and really recognised what the fun parts of Christopher could be. And like like a Melody. beautiful puppet master <laughs> made it happen. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I listened to the album, thought, oh, I really, I'm really into this. I'm bopping around my kitchen listening to it. Like, I thought, you know what? Maybe I just want to like this album to be contrary. So I left it for three days. And in those three days, about four of the songs were stuck in my head. And when I came back, I had to admit to myself that I did genuinely really like it. There's a certain amount of irony in my appreciation of this album because there are so many weird things on it. Yeah. But what yeah, I learned... Like, like Krista Berg. <laughs> I mean, the central weird thing is Krista Berg, who is an enigma. Um, Wrapped in a riddle. But what I learned, again, from like randomly just clicking on other songs on YouTube of his was that... The things that he's got like four things that he does, I've learned. And it's soppy ballads. It's kind of epic, very radio friendly pop with loads of keys. Um, there's another thing he does, which is this kind of gross um, look how much compassion I have for humanity kind of song where he's <laughs> like, Jesus. And like he wants to the little children to come to me and I'll appreciate their like inner innocence and beauty and oh my god some of the songs of that vein that I heard out of this album I just couldn't hack um, and the fourth thing that he does what have I kind of disco like airy disco pop, oh probably. the fourth thing that he does is basically makes up shit <laughs> uh, where he writes a song and he considers himself like a great storyteller he writes a song where he's imagining that he's a spy or that he's a marine saying goodbye to his lady at the port or whatever. And all of these are on... I that's the a, that's a second album. I know the one you're talking yeah, about. It's, what's yeah, it's called Paradise or something. Something, something at the music. gates or something. Or something um, like. uh, yeah, I know the one you're thinking. Uh, but yeah, so all of those four like types of song are present on Man on the Line. And all of them, I feel like whatever he's doing is justified because it sounds good and it's fun and it's catchy. Whereas... On other albums, I'm like, oh man, I can't, I can't deal with the lyric. <laughs> he has a lyric on one of his songs that's "Touch me with your tender mouth." All right, does that's that not nice. make you feel nauseous? <laughs> well, if it's Christopher. If it's Christopher, yeah. yes. Well, it's always the thing about it is, if Lana Del Rey said that to me, I'd be like, no problem. But Chris, you know, go right ahead, Lana. <laughs> but he's very, very literal in his songs. All his songs are visceral. I would say based on the oh, lyrics. Oh, very yes. visceral. Well, that's yeah. visceral. But it's but it's 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 he doesn't go into metaphor too much. And when he does go to metaphor, it's simple, like this is a spark to a flame or whatever. Mostly, it's there's a man on the line. He keeps calling me. Uh, he won't stop phoning me on the phone. You know, it's yeah. quite spe- it's specific and it's, it's, it doesn't use metaphor like Lady in Red, she is dancing with me cheek to cheek. It's like it's that kind of stuff. And, and that over the course of an album just doesn't work that much, you know. But I, I was surprised by how much this kind of reminded me of Phil Collins, how much of this reminded me of Brian Ferry. This I thought I would absolutely hate. 
and when I, while I do, there are <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of songs. High on emotion is a good song, you know. It's a good song. You got it, it. It is yeah. epic. Good song. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm yeah. still trying to get over you comparing Brian Ferry to Chris. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, so am I. I'm, 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 I'm faint. <laughs> no, but the point is that there, this is what I was surprised by: is that there is a bit of that in here. I'm not yeah. saying that it's as, it's as, it's okay. The good parts of Brian Ferry. I'm yeah. saying it's stuff that leans towards that. And yeah. um, also, there's a thing with the album, and it's. If you like, if you were making a a, a a comedy show now, and you were ha- you had a scene that was a flashback in a disco in the eighties, the music would sound like it was coming yeah. from this album. It is quite. It's all the bits of the eighties, like the funny kind of pew pew kind of keyboards and all that kind of thing. It all exists here, and the funny drum machines. And anyway, he's got one song called Sight and Touch, and one song called High and Emotion, and both of those are good songs. And Tina Turner's on it, apparently. But yeah, Tina a, Turner is allegedly on a lot of this album and I haven't identified her once. I haven't she is, well, I was talking about that thing that he does where he's like, children, come on to me. <laughs> and he, um, that song on here is called Sound, Sound of a Gun. Gun. Yeah. And there's a bit where <laughs> Tina Turner allegedly, again, it doesn't sound super like her, but she's on the credits. Um, she's just going, hush, child. And it's incredibly creepy, that is, but... That is her, And that's actually, not yes. one of the best songs in the album, but even that didn't <laughs> bother me. Even that I could forgive because of the way that song sounded and because it was fun and it was up-tempo and I liked what they'd done with it. Yeah, and it's supposed to be about, you know, children in a war zone or whatever, but, I mean, yeah. like, is that a post thing where you write a song and you go, actually, this is um, about 9-11. <laughs> you know. Oh no! I think he sits down. And he's like, now I need to have one where I seem like a humanitarian. I need to have one where I talk about a woman's body. Yeah, yeah there's definitely a bit of that. But is it a good album? Like, I mean, this is a question. I mean, I think it's a good, not great pop album. And I think, um, like Dave was saying earlier, like part of the reason for the revisit is to sort of bring something to people's attentions that they wouldn't have thought they would have liked. Absolutely, yeah, mm-hmm. and. This is definitely one of those. Like, if you are not interested in very broad, mainstream 80s pop, you're not really going to like this. Um, and kind of like what James was saying with you too, I really think this was his album. This is his seventh album, and he hadn't really charted much. And this is the best he did with this album at that time. Uh, and I think he was very deliberately going, I need radio hits, <laughs> and I need them now. And I think he managed to make something really fun. And I really loved, you know, washing the dishes with this on the background. Fun is, not what good enough was, for uh, fun is not what I was expecting, but like I was surprised. And like that's kind of like, you know, I think three of the five records on this list fall into New Romantic Territory. And I was surprised that Christopher was as upbeat and out of the tracks with it on this one. Mm-hmm. Like I threw it on first track. I was like, okay, here we fucking go. And then it was like, actually, hang on. This is actually a bit of fun. Mm-hmm. And then the problem is you get a bit of whiplash, though, because after about two or three tracks, he just brings it down, brings it down way too early. And then you kind of get a bit of a topsy-turvy thing going on. And then by the end of the record, you're like, OK, I'm done now. Stop, Please stop talking, Chris. OK, I get it. You but don't like transmission ends? It's all right. But I think I was just kind of battered pillar to post with just the tone shifting here and It there. isn't consistent it's, at all. It's yeah. so inconsistent. And like mm-hmm. that's a massive problem. I mean, like sequencing, which was a bigger deal, I want to say, back in the 80s, because, you know, it wasn't just playlist culture and it wasn't iPod culture and it was the album was the album. Uh, so I was quite surprised that it was a bit all over the place in that regard. But I will say that it surprised me uh, in a pleasant way as well. I thought it you know, kind of worked when it worked and did not work when it did not work. But I was ready to just despise this. And the fact that I didn't is a thumbs up for me, I guess, to a degree. Now, I find it a very, I shall put it like, in the same way when I had the pleasure of reviewing Christa Berg and the Gaiety, I found it very entertaining, very cheesy, or very quiche at times. 
But, um, I, you know, I wasn't looking at my watch. I didn't want it to end. In a, well, no, I did want it to end. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I wasn't bored out of my mind. And um, that was actually the concert that Peter Crawley did, the infamous review in the Irish Times, where Chris de Berg was moved enough to the extent to write Peter Crawley an open letter that then was picked up on the the Deborah Orr interview that was kind of kind of done subsequently. Which and is one of the best interviews best of all time. Ever. Yeah. You What's need to this? Google it immediately. So Christopher in 2012, I think, his last, one of his last albums did an interview with the UK Independent and it tells you everything you need to know about him. Um, it is bizarre. It is like the bit in the UK office when David Brent is interviewed by a local paper and he basically tells them what to write. Um, there's a bit where the the journalist's name is Deborah and he keeps calling her Debbie and she's like, please call me Deborah. And he keeps like squeezing her knee and being like, no, Debbie. Oh, God. <laughs> it's amazing. I've written down basically the whole interview here if you'd like me to quote it verbatim for you. But it's so <laughs> worth reading. It is so bizarre and surreal and amazing. Give us an example. Sure. Yeah. Okay, here's an example. Um, you seem like an incredibly visual person, I say. He says, I am. He then taps the side of his head. It's like a cineplex going on in here. <laughs> Which actually explains so much. Like one of the songs on the album is him pretending to be an MI6 agent in a bar in Moscow. And the line, which I cannot let the podcast end without quoting, is that dancing girl is making eyes at me. I'm sure she's working for the KGB. That's pretty wow. good. That's pretty good. I love that he's sure. He's sure she's working for the KGB. <laughs> no question. Um, so, he, yeah, I mean, he seems like he's pretty delusional. Yeah. But I think <laughs> this album is a beautiful intersection for me of um, kind of his delusion and you know, nice, like, a, and it, it gives, it gives a good result. I think it's the best mm. his delusion has gotten. Would you interview him if you're given the chance? I think I'd be scared. Yeah. Maybe Skype <gasps> or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe by email. <laughs> and his conviction in his vocals in this is part of what's older to me, especially because there's one note, one high note on one of the ballads that he's just not hitting. Like he's not in, even in the same room as this note and he leaves it in and I should like want to scold him for that but I kind of like that he thought or I hope he thought you know perfect the mel- the, yeah <laughs> nailed, it. nailed it the melody is better when this note remains and I'm not quite getting it but yeah. I'll leave it in to serve the melody but I'm sure he just thought I am nailing this are you still affronted by this Brian Ferry comparison James a little bit but I just uh, <laughs> well, no just because I don't know because I love rock music, I love, yeah. For start, yeah. But I just Chris Berg always just makes me think of um, you know the dude that made that film a bunch of years ago called Room or the Room. Yes, this crazy guy thought he was convinced he was a genius. Tell me why, so. but it's become like a cult thing. Chris Berg is like that in the songwriting form, where he's convinced what he's doing is amazing, and then people, and then he makes that happen. I, mean, I don't know how, I don't know who's behind him telling him he's great, who's, who's funding this or whatever. But it happens. And then he realizes his dream by becoming a massive pop star. And, you know, Princess Diana's favorite song is this lady in red. And he becomes this mega star. And it's almost out of force of will that he, like, he thinks it's he's so secret. great. But it's just like, <laughs> I admire his moxie for someone who's just patently not very good at anything he does. <laughs> has amazed, <laughs> amazingly, has made a career from himself. Great at interviews. But it's like, it's like, don't like his voice at all. Uh, his songs are bad. He's, everything just sounds like half-assed. It sounds like a big kind of, like people are just humoring him 
or it's like he's a rich guy and people want to be around him but he didn't at that stage he wasn't like mega rich so I just I'd love to know whatever Chris Burber who's around him who's his manager who's his label who's his musicians who's his friends like puffing him up into convincing him he can do this and maybe they believe in him or something and then he kind of proves them right because he became massive and made a lot of money and had his big fan base but it's just it's it's, it's to me it's not hilarious but it's um, fascinating He's mm-hmm. a fascinating star. Someone who patently like no talent has become this big, <laughs> big, big thing, and people love him. His fans love him, and yeah. you know, like you were saying about kind of soft '80s kind of Loverman Crooney stuff. Think of someone like Michael Bolton, who was <laughs> has an amazing voice, is like like a good looking star, and Christopher is none of that, but has the force of will to make it happen. And o- like only in the '80s, I can't imagine how, only in the '80s that something like that. Because nowadays, Christopher would be like putting out his own music on Spotify and he'd be like his own thing but some label signed him and like seven albums is this seven records Alpert's label who signed him who's oh, that, that, of this guy's in love with you fame oh god which is a similar niche you have to say and the Tijuana Brass mm. and that really annoys me because I'm a big fan of his so like what's his why that, that's the thank you Herb oh, man, really <laughs> thank ruined, you that's ruined things but anyway he made people happy and that's what music should he be doing, I guess. certainly made me happy with this album. <laughs> ringing endorsement. I'll be yeah, listening yeah. to this. I'll be looking for these songs on every karaoke book that I encounter over the next 10 years. Well, I think we've sufficiently destroyed Christopher enough for one day. We'll move on you to... You might get it uh, better. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll bring it on. Uh, no Encore like Podcast. <laughs> no Encore Podcast, uh, 4 or 5 Lombard Street. Silent Touch is beautiful. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll move on to Silent Running and Shades of Liberty. Okay, so that's the title track there from Shades of Liberty. Solid Running, named presumably after the science fiction film of the same name, which is a fine film. Worth checking out. Uh, this is the debut album from a band from up north. And yeah, titled Emotional Warfare, actually, in the US and Canada, which is track two on this one. So, you know, with a title like that, you might expect it to be a bit emotional. And it is. And it's that kind of new romantic sheen that you can only get in the middle of the 80s. And uh, before I kind of get into my thoughts on this one, I'm just curious as to what people think about the idea of... Because the bubble burst. I mean, the bubble burst with this sound. But you got to wonder for bands in that time, did they know it was coming? Because it's, it's very easy yeah. to sit here now and look back on it and go, my God, that sounds dated, that sounds so of its time. And it's a glorious sound, but it, it, I wonder, I wonder like if a band of this nature was like, well, you know, we'll get five years out of this. Or if the 90s just came along and was like, see ya. I mean, like, like, like there's just a weird disparity because it's so tied it's so tethered like you could throw this on to anybody and they'd be like well that's clearly made in 1985 1984 mm-hmm. um, which is not a slight um, like it, it's, it's just a cur- it's real curio to me it's dated as food <laughs> yeah that's a, a very that's short a way of saying, what saying yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what it is it just makes it sound so over time because it never you know it never developed it never went anywhere you know and you had to leave that sound to go somewhere yeah, which this is the thing. This is exactly the thing which like 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 I find is that they can't leave that sound. You're so tied to a genre trope here, you're so tied to limitation. And it kinda of reminds me of like, you know, post rock bands. People will always kinda of cite the post rock genre as being 
you know, there's not a lot of places you can go with it. I mean, you think of bands like Explosions in the Sky and Mogwai, um, and, you know, at home, you think of bands like Overhead, The Albatross, and granted, at the time of recording, they're only on their first record, and I think they actually do quite a lot with their sound. But, you know, I, I love Explosions in the Sky, I love Mogwai, I love post-rock uh, music, um, But you, and I do think that it gets a bit of a bad rap in that regard. I think that, that those bands generally try and think outside the box a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. Granted, they can fall into a formula, but I think 80s kind of new wave and new romantic is much more tied down like you're there's such a ceiling and unfortunately I like this record but I find that before the end of this record I've heard it like you're halfway through and you've heard it like you're kind of like yep that was really fun that was really cool I love the sheen on that the production that's gorgeous his voice is good like you know I like the arrangement and then you're like oh well here we are again by track 6 or track 7 it's just me it kind of feels that way you know I got fatigue as well like the first half of the album I was like this is you know great crack and Mm. then it kind of wore off the my enjoyment of it wore off a little bit towards the kind of second half. Yeah, and I feel kind of churlish even saying that. Like, I don't mean to bury an entire genre or the bands that that made really good songs, but it's just a weird thing. It's a weird... Like, like this is not a long record. It's like 42 minutes, and, like, you know, it doesn't necessarily outstay its welcome, but you do... Eight songs, but three of them are five or six minutes long. I mean, there is a... It's very... Bombastic, samey. Generic, I think. Generic. Terribly generic. I have to say, like, and, and... I I I would be a lyrics person, um, I suppose if that makes sense. Um, and the lyrics in this, so it had the phrase "cuts like like a knife." It had the phrase "penny for your thoughts," a wind of change is coming. Um, home is where the heart is. Sticks and stones will break your bones, but you know names Jeez. will never hurt me. Keep the home fires burning. Oh God! You know it's yeah, like, yeah. and those are like these are lyrics. The chorus. Yeah, those yeah. are like yeah, names yeah, yeah. of but songs I, I, and never, lyrics. It's based around. Yeah, I've never heard anything that is so weirdly like that. It's like if they had a, um, they had like a, a cuttings of, of famous phrases in a box in the middle of the room, and they were like, "What do we put in the chorus?" And they pulled one out, and it's like, "Oh, home is where the heart is," you know, and that's what uh, you know that kind of stuff. Which just I think <coughs> is, I think it pushes you away from the record. You know, it's like it's yeah. like, a, like a, it's it's like a, the more generic, as you said, yeah. it is. It puts a barrier in between you and it, the. It's album. just cliche after cliche Cliches, with the lyrics, yeah. the production, the arrangements. But bizarrely, I was kind of reading up a bit because I, you know, this is one another thing that's interesting about doing this. I was going, who the hell is that? It's like, oh, okay, right, that's some, you know, can this Belfast, you know, kind of eighties um, kind of thing that kind of slipped through the net, and read back kind of some of the reviews about this particular album got a five star review in Melody Maker mm-hmm. which I find weird yeah. because Melody Maker always had the reputation of being the very esoteric kind of much more arty than the than the NME or Q or any, or Sounds or you know there's millions of the music press actually meant something back then mm. so these were kind of uh, critical pets in Melody Maker or sorry, well, one journalist in Melody Maker yeah. which I find kind of weird to to, to read you know I mean, like, uh, I've got another one. The American Billboard magazine uh, put in their recommended section and uh, said that it was U2-style wall of sound to a disco beat. And again, that's the U2 comparison, that which makes sense. Yeah. Makes I, I sense. hear a lot of U2 in this. I mean, I know it's new romantic, but I do hear a lot of U2. And Simple Minds. And Simple sure. Minds. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, like yeah. on that track you said, Emotional Warfare, is Duran Duran. I wrote yes. Duran Durani. But... And the thing about emotional warfare is it's not as bad as actual warfare. Emotional warfare is is bad. 
Okay. Okay. But real warfare is terrible. Whereas they make it sound like <laughs> the actual emotional warfare is the worst thing that's ever happened. I think we're to go into some big political statement there. I was like, where are you going with I this? No, yeah. that's what I was thinking. <laughs> this for word from Belfast, you know, like it, yeah. it's, they're talking. About, you know, it doesn't. I didn't get a lot of that. You know, of like the amazing kind of like insane life that they must have lived through well they have a before this album came out I think they had a single called something like, uh, like if the, if when, when, when the 12th never comes or something yeah. oh yeah a reference yeah, to the 12th of July yeah. my birthday uh, but uh, whatever like you know this, oh you uh, fine orange man you. Uh, middle name William Quinston Quinston <laughs> I swear Quinston uh, but like yeah it's it's yeah this is the thing you kind of think if they're taking their inspiration and their cues from that real life kind of horror and trauma why is this album so you know Standard, like it's we've heard it all before. I will say, like I do like the aesthetic, though. I mean, like you know. But then again, I think that Glenn Hoddle and Chris Waddle song is amazing. So, but with music like this, the, like mid eighties, uh, new romantic east sound and big pop music, I'm always interested. I'd always be interested, interested to know what the band is bringing to the situation before a producer and a label gets involved. If, mm. like, when these guys are in a rehearsal room and someone's signing them, and they sound one way, and then the label says, "Well, this is what we got to do to get you on the radio," and then a producer comes in and adds. 50% or 20% is it 10% is it all that sheen and sound and kind of uh, something that makes them stick out is kind of paired away to make them all sound like it fits a certain mould so it's hard to it's hard to know for an album mm. like this when you hear it, you're like man this just sounds like everything else at the time is there a better record under there if they just made their own record and it wouldn't it wouldn't have, you know it would have sounded wouldn't have dated as much recorded like, in Wim, Wim, Wim Lane with the uh, Simple Minds producer okay so there, there you go. go boom boom yeah, yeah. You know, like so I, I, I like it's it's just I, I'd never heard of the band before for the record it was like yeah. it was cool to know there was a band like this in Ireland making this kind of music at least we had a kind of skin in the game but the thing about New Romantic music is when like the whole kind of New Romantic movement started late 70s early 80s like it was edgy it was weird, it was dangerous, it was kind of druggy, it was kids that would seen them, saw themselves as kind of sexual outcasts who were inspired by Bowie. And it was this really kind of hip, edgy thing. And within a year or two, it was completely co-opted and became this uh, super safe sound. Very glossy. You know, let's have fun, yeah. it's the 80s, let's, go, let's let our hair down. And then like within, like even before the 90s, before the end of the 80s, it kind of petered out. And is it because bands like U2 kind of led the way and said, look, don't make that nonsense, make big important sounding dramatic music and it doesn't have to be all about going crazy and like yuppie pop music or whatever so it's it's just they, they caught the tail end of it if they'd been around three or four years beforehand yeah I mean you say you caught, caught the tail end like their last record comes out in 1989 and it's like it just it feels almost like you know someone just closed the book on them there's just like a general like yeah. okay guys you're not coming with the us the stone roses of just the pixies you know this is it now and you're just not invited to this party which again like I find quite fascinating like it is that kind of weird thing I mean I think I think you know as a document of the time it, it completely fits the bill but it's you know, like, so, you know, you were saying, like, you know, even by the end, you were like, I'm I'm, I'm fatigued. So yeah. I can't imagine this will be joining your Christopher washing the dishes playlist. <laughs> no, you know what? Like, if this Is song... Is Christopher washing if, her dishes in this... Uh, that's in this too theory. creepy. That's, no, sorry. No one needs that. Please don't ruin my relationship with Chris. Um, <laughs> if this album was the first four tracks, I probably would... Yeah. Yeah, stick this on definitely. washing the dishes if it was an EP basically yeah if it was yeah. an EP and it, I do think actually I don't know the name of the vocalist but his performance I really loved like mm-hmm. I don't know James if what you're talking about happened with him or them being kind of pressured to do this certain kind of sound but whatever happened he is really singing like he's very passionate mm-hmm. and I think he's performing 
like this is the best he thinks it's the best song that's ever happened <laughs> and that was probably part of why I liked the first half of this album as well as the kind of disco elements which I mean I just always love of course uh, yeah well there's three kind of confident vocalists so far uh, we shall move on to another famous vocalist from this here nation this is the Pogues and this is what they sound like So that's taken from Red Roses for me. Eamon Sweeney, if, if, if you've never heard a Pogues album before, is this the one to start with? To be totally honest, no, because it, um, it's, an, it's, it's a fascinating uh, debut album and a fantastic debut album at that. But if you're looking for a, a definitive Pogues album, it's Rum, Sodomy and the Lash or uh, If I Should Fall by the Grace of God because they have all those amazing singles, whether it be Fairy Tale of New York, uh, A Rainy Night in Soho, all those, the classic, classic Shane McGowan songs are on both those albums. And I have a lot, a lot of um, respect. I think it's a very underrated record is uh, Peace and Love as well, where they attempt to do an Acid House Kaylee album. And it doesn't fully work, but imagine, for the day alone. That. And I think on about, there's six or seven tracks on that album, which are absolutely stunning and the rest a bit filler. But anyway, sorry, moving back to this. I think just purely because this coming out of nowhere in 1984, uh, you could really argue that this really kind of sent a shockwave in Irish music, both in, let's say, rock music, for want of a better word, and also traditional Irish music, akin to something like Nevermind the Bollocks in uh, by the Sex Pistols in 1978. Like something that just blew the doors open and introduced, even though this, uh, this is far from being their definitive album, while it's still great, and it's a great li- a listen from beginning to end, and the songwriting is fantastic, like it introduces... The, the talents of Shane McGowan and you see in the beginning the realisation of someone who was without a doubt one of the best Irish songwriters ever if not if not the best you could say he's possibly the best um, what's interesting here is if you kind of got like you're seeing the emergence of McGowan rather than the, the fully realised thing so you've you've a lot of traditional songs in, in here you've got a great version of Brendan Behan's The Out Triangle The Dinkle Regatta lots of different jigs and reels and so on and even though that's a motif on all the Pogues albums um, as they go on, especially Rum, Sodomy and the Lash, what's very interesting about that is kind of like that Elvis Costello did the production on that. It was much more expansive sounding. And there's more McGowan tracks that M- McGowan kind of more and more crept into the, mi- into the mix. And they really are just then, as musicians, they improve from here. But the musicianship on this is still really good. If, if I was to fault it, I kind of go maybe compared to the later um, Pogues albums, there's something a bit kind of flat about it. However, having said that, I think it really works in that way because it gives this kind of darkness to it, like the dark streets of London, uh, the boys from the county hell, which would be one of my favourite tracks, and uh, the first track, Trans uh, Trans um, Metropolitan, which is going to quote the lyrics here because I wonder if you came out with something like this in this day and age, how to go down. I'm not going to attempt to do a Shane McGowan. <laughs> go on. <laughs> I could, uh, uh, no, I'd make it more of a fool of myself than I already am. So I'm going to read it like as if I'm reading poetry here. Yeah. As if it's this literature, this is Seamus Heaney or something. But anyway, from, uh, from Brixton's lovely Boulevards to Hammersmith's slightly shores, 
We scare the Camden Palace poofs and, wo- and wo- worry all the whores. There's leeches up in Whitehall and queers in the GLC. And when we've, we've done those bastards in, we'll storm the BBC. And of course, and it's a real... And that's the first track. And there's something just so punk rock about this. And this is... It's Paddy's just really been... Here we are. Like, they're, they're, I suppose the Dexys Midnight Runners would be another kind of parallel that would have kind of a precursor to the Pogues, if you like. And Kevin Rowland and Shane McGowan are fascinating examples of songwriters who directly, you know, address their, their dual nationality and all the all the um, contradictions that go with that and all the kind of like, oh, you're a thick paddy or you're a terrorist uh, and really explore those themes. And I couldn't think of two more different people, really, as in McGowan, the drinker, and then kind of Roland was very much the puritanical kind of like get people running before recording sessions and so on. But um, yeah, sorry, anyway, in a very long-winded way there, answering your question. Is this the place to start? No. Um, is it, a, is it, is it, is it a, a, a good album? Yes, it's a very good Pogues album. But it's, it's, not, one, though, it's not it? a great Pogues album. He doesn't, uh, I think that the tra- like there's six, you know, six covers, there's about five in their yeah. trad and the yeah, other yeah. Like the best, two of the best songs, well, three of the best songs, Dingle, uh, Regatta, for me, Kitty and El Triangle were my three favourite tracks and they're all covers or traditional. Okay. Uh-huh. I, I, but I like uh, Down on the Ground and the way it just turns into a shouting match, you know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I just found it a fun, one of the things that I, I look, like I, I think Shane McGowan's a great writer and uh, he, he, you know, obviously in the in the, the, sub, the next two albums, Rum, uh, Solomon Nash and the Fuff Grace from God, but, those uh, albums, he sings throughout. And this album, he only really sings the way he sings later uh, in Kitty and an El Triangle. And uh, I know I miss that a lot. There's a lot of the kind of, it's really punky, really shouty. It sounds like I imagined they would do it live. Sure. Um, yeah. And it's, it's weird. It's like, you know, it's, it's, like they're, it's like they're trying to be exciting. And in the way that they're trying to be exciting, you hear the rawness of some of the vocals and stuff, but it doesn't. I don't think it translates as much. I do. Like I found it. You know, like, you know, when you when you go abroad and you play, you know, you're touring or whatever, and you know, if you're meeting up with people, you might meet them at the Irish bar. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it sounds uh-huh. like the band in the Irish bar, as opposed to like a. Do you know what I mean? It, it sounds too much like someone kind of doing an impression of that. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, for me, on that. I, no, album, I think that's that's fair enough because it's it's really as. We keep on repeating about this. It's kind of it's later on that they kind of properly find their feet. I think it's both musicians and Shane as a songwriter. Um, it's not what a debut album is for, though. Particularly if you're kind of of this kind of you know particular nature. I mean, like feeling it out, especially as well as well when you're coming out with you know as you say heavyweight tracks that aren't your own. I mean, is it not more about making the, the statement, having a bit of attitude? I would agree with you, actually, Eamon, that oh, no, you know, they do that. They do that totally right. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I think I agree. And the, the, and as well, you know, there's beer glasses being clinked in throughout, and there's yeah, yeah. you know they're putting across their, their you know their their modus operandi all the way through it, you know, and mm-hmm. and they're. I guess it's a kind of a manifesto in a way. It, that kind of thing is, and I think yeah. But if you're talking yeah. about a good album, I mean, you can't. You're revisiting this. You can't. It doesn't exist without the other the other ones. You know, it exists in the world with sure, the other albums. Absolutely, so it, it's impossible to yeah yeah to kind of look at it without the other ones. And what what the Pogues are sort of to people in the way that like you two, for example, you, what what you two are, what they became. This is like the it's like a, the start of it, as opposed to you know I don't know if, yeah you know it's like <laughs> I don't know. I. It's my favorite Pogues album. It's one of my favorite albums ever. Really, I, I love it. I okay. think it's it's of all the five in tonight. I think it's the best. I think it's the one that's least dated. I think it's. I agree with that. I think it absolutely. If the Pogues broke up after this record, 
it, they would have done their job. I think it's such a touchdown record. And I think the way it sounds, it sounds like a band that can't believe their luck, that someone's going to record them doing this, and we got to give everything we can. And if this is all we ever do, this has to be most energetic. We have to put everything into this. It's going to sound messy. It's going to sound all over the graph. But they did it, and it captures it. And I think it's... If I I would almost disagree. I think if you're ever gonna if you're gonna start this new Apogee album, start with this. Oh. This is the door. This is it. This captures it completely. The songwriting gets better. The recordings get better as time goes on. He's clearly like a genius songwriter. But this, you can't like I've I've I listen to this record a lot just in life. Just walking around. Just if whatever mood I'm in, I put it on. Like this will make me feel better regardless of what if I'm feeling if whatever. Especially when I'm on tour for years touring. This one is one record that I listen to. I'm like right. Let's let's do it. Let's just whatever's going on. Let's just go for it because it, it's it sounds like the most fun record to make. It sounds like they had a great cr- crack making it, and they didn't care. They're like, we we'll just make it. We'll do what we do. do and, say, yeah, and it just yeah, sounds like uh-huh. I think an album like this, a band like this. I just I kind of like, I can I, I can't imagine if someone hears this album, they won't love it and won't go wow. This who is this band? This is incredible. And then in you go. Next few records, songs get better. They get more well known like he sings more whatever it might be but this is just like it's just like it captures them at just the moment where obviously because he'd been in he'd been in the nips he'd been in punk bands before he was waiting for looking for his vehicle the Young Republicans was the last I think one yeah he had this he had, they had to capture this thing and it feels like it might go off the rails all the time and I love that I just I just think it's but you it's know, one of I think it's one of the top five Irish albums ever wow I think it's wow. just I think it's a phenomenal record and I can't and as although the next year I could maybe have better songs or just had more went into it and you know they grew as a band this is just like if, if, listening to it again I hadn't heard it in like a couple of weeks or a couple of months actually until we were li- listening for this uh, this podcast and then I just like oh my god how, how have I not heard this in the last week or two weeks this is wow. I need to have this okay. all it the time it means a lot to you this record yeah I just love it yeah. I, I yeah. love it and that's partially why I didn't want to be the one doing the main review of it because it's like just whatever they do, this is this is gold. You wouldn't talk twice as long as I did. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> but I can see. I mean, even the versions of like you hear them doing the old triangle. That's it. That's the, yeah. to me. That's a quintessential well, version. That is great. You can't. Yeah, that's yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. anyone who does it. Uh, 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 more modern bands. I'm not going to name. Do awful versions, and it's all this kind of reverential nonsense. Like this is a song written to be sung like that, to but be played is, like and that. The, and the song Waxy Dargle. And the thing. Yeah, the same thing. But it's like I I I always thought it was funny how. They were like screaming the lyrics yeah, at each other, yeah. you know. Oh, I have a pipe right now, you know. <laughs> and I, I just, I don't know. I just thought it was funny, and so I didn't know how to take it. I think because it's almost like they don't care, and they're just shouting it out. And I don't know. I, I, I do agree though. You can't ignore it. You no. know, it's like it, it has. It does affect you. There's and so much energy in it. Like I was, I read this thing earlier on. It's one of this is one of the first uh, examples of something going viral. It was the song Waxy Dargo. Yeah. Because they did it on the tube, uh, it was a TV show um, in the eighties, a show called the Tube, mm-hmm. and uh, they, he was hitting his head. Uh, Spider Stacy was, was hitting his head with a tray, a beer tray, uh, doing percussion all the way through, and it became something that everyone kept asking to listen to again and again and watch again. So they kept playing it, you know. And so like it's like that's that's what happens now, you know. People yeah. like see a clip and they go mental, and it's like that was one of the things that like broke them you know and they, yeah. they were talking about releasing it as a single afterwards to, to push the, the album and all. but, it's, not but like it's, it's one thing with traditional Irish music in general is there's always this 
when this kind of search for proficiency, and let's get really good at the tin whistle, really good at our instruments, and it sucks all the life out of it. Because I think you can get to the point where it's played so well, it's kind of antiseptic. And with the Pogues, it, they could play just enough to get across what they wanted to get it was across. Punk rock. Uh, yeah, well, that was like, it. And, yeah, and it's yeah. just, like, I think, I mean, there's a whole genre of music now, like Dropkick Murphs, all that stuff that's into, like, Celtic punk, and, and it has that vibe to it, but they can't capture that. You yeah, can't cap- you can't capture yeah, that, and you yeah, can't, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't know how long this record took to make. It could, could have been a day, it could have been a week, but you know, yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah. it, to me, it's almost like, um, like a lot of my favorite like hip hop records. I'm thinking like Illmatic or something, where Nas went in to make that, and it was like, look, this could be it. This is my one shot to maybe tell my story, and I got gets what across, get what I get across, what I yeah. want to get across. And he made it, and it's like one of the greatest albums ever. But then he made a bunch of other records which are really good, but he never seemed to be able to capture that again. And I think although the next few Pogues records might actually be better albums technically with better recording, better songs. They just never capped it. This is a thing. This is like an artifact. If, if someone was going to say, well, like, what's Irish music sound like to you? It's like, this is it. that's what I want Irish music to sound like. Mm-hmm. Selena, uh, based on what James said earlier, did you love it? Did you go wow? Um, I, like, was just thinking there when you were saying um, about how they weren't, like, at their most proficient or whatever. Like, I'm someone who loves proficiency in music and I love polished, shiny things. Mm-hmm. And when I heard this and... I didn't have a personal reaction to it and the Pogues are a struggle for me to listen to because it's not a sound that I just naturally love. But I did think, wow, and I thought the energy on this is amazing. Like it's it's kind of magical, like the the vibe they create on this. And I mean, you have to give it up to anyone who's like, ah, lads, will we just scream for 30 seconds at the end of this track? Right, yeah. <laughs> Won't that be funny? Like they've managed to make like something that has this really unique feeling to it that I really liked. And I mean, it's not something I'm going to be listening to all the time, but it def- it's definitely a great album. Mm, yeah. The en- like yeah. energy was the word that just kept coming into my head. Like they must have been sweating buckets <laughs> making this. Yeah. Uh-huh. <coughs> sweating buckets and well lubricated, I'm sure. Like. Oh, I'm sure. But, but there is, yeah, under all that and all the cliches about the, the drinking and all the madness and so on as a statement of intent even the, take the cover of this that the way that they're posing it's around this With kind of JFK. this portrait of JFK it's like that kind of you know 1960s Irish living room but Carl Reardon's there with a fag and you know a bottle of beer or something There's or a can, a can of beer coats and, and you yeah. see like you know and the fact that you know it's a girl in this band as well yeah and you know she's a fascinating person like yeah. as well and her punky energy is yeah. the basis of what she brings to this like and you could argue you know that kind of when she left subsequently, like they may have got bigger and had bigger hits, but they lost their punk rock. And this, I suppose, in a way you could yeah. say, you know? And it's, 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 yeah, it's strange to think they got as big as they got. And that Fairytale mm-hmm. New York is the song that it is from the band that they started as. Yeah. Like, no, how will this band ever become, like, ever get on the radio, ever be, like, if you, if you describe what was going to happen in the following five or six years of their career, like no that's not gonna happen well let's see if James is as passionate about our final record on this episode this is Micro Disney and everybody is fantastic
talk to us. Uh, so, when I was young, younger, and started music, um, obviously you kind of grow up when you're when you're young in bands, you're kind of cynical about what's around. And I always used to say that like older friends of mine, um, yeah, Ireland never has any cool bands or whatever. And one of the first bands they said like, no, no, we we used to have really cool bands. It was a band called Micro Disney, who were really cool, really great. You should check them out. Um, so this is when I'm like 16, 17 years old. And I went back in, and at the time I thought, oh, this is just like nonsense, it sounds too 80s. Um, but over the last five, six, seven years, when you kind of revisit them, you realize what a great band they were, um, what the great records that they made. I mean, this, is, this isn't this is one of their great records. This isn't like the, their pivotal, like their two really, really great records are uh, Clock Comes Down the Stairs, which is like critically acclaimed as every Irish music critic regards it in one of the best Irish albums ever and then uh, Crooked Mile which was the first record they made when they signed to a major label but when they started out uh, two two guys from Cork um, Kyle Coughlin and uh, Sean O'Hagan um, starting out d- decided to kind of uh, avoid going to Dublin because at the time in the early 80s Dublin was buzzing because of U2 and it was very I guess kind of like a um, pa- uh, everyone was patting everyone on the back and just a, a kind of very, quite insular and uh, so they went straight to London as part of their story too. Two lads from Cork moving to London, like living the life of like uh, expats in a band, uh, kind of grim. Always their music always seems like it's raining outside. Like they're not eating well. They're always wearing like jumpers. They're drinking too much. And that- <laughs> soggy <laughs> jumpers, yeah, soggy, soggy from rain. Just what jumpers. I imagine eight, the early eighties in in London was like for indie musicians. Because the other thing about Micro Disney is I think they were the first Irish band to sign to Rough Trade. So straight away they're oh. straight away they're like I think they were, like eighty three. Mm, stiff little fingers, I think my Oh sorry, well yeah, well think. Yeah, no stiff little you, fingers. You could look look the one the first two or three. Yeah. Let's put so that So that's like that's straight away yeah, like yeah. A, a ban on a cool label. Jeff Travis signing like mm. the Mr. Cool <laughs> indie music. So there was obviously something there. So when I started, I I wasn't as familiar with this record. I knew the other two w- way better. So when I started listening, you could see what they were going to become. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a dour listen. A lot of it is quite dour. Uh, they haven't quite found the balance between Kyle Coughlin's really great lyrics, but very down and kind of um, heavy. There's a lot of heaviness. Songs about drinking, loneliness, you know, being alone, not finding love, you know, the state of the world. And then Sean O'Hagan's making all this kind of nice pop music to go around it, and it doesn't quite work. Uh, some of the songs on the record, there's a song called Moon, which is just a beautiful song. It just happens in the middle of the album. Yeah, Moon it's is a gorgeous, great song. And it kind of almost sounds like, a, um, oh, I don't know, kind of... David Bowie's singing to... Uh, yeah, it has singing, a kind of Bowie vibe or um, like Jay. Talk Talk or something. Everybody <laughs> sings a song with the little fat man. Oh, yeah. that's... Yeah. Yeah. There's a lyric in that. It's <laughs> like, really. little fat man lives yeah. on the moon. I was like... It's <laughs> I'm trying to think of that. Uh, the film, Scottish yeah. band. Oh my God, Poppy Can's the singer. Oh, the Blue Nile. Blue Nile. So it almost yeah. has that kind of yeah. airy keyboardy mm. sound. Yeah, and Carl Cochran, yeah. because it's such a deep voice, kind of like baritone and the world, blah blah blah, and what, a strong accent. Yeah, and c- when the yeah. music is too light, it doesn't blend. You know, and and yeah. I, I think in this record, it just doesn't blend right uh, all the way through. I think the dude that produced it was the Smiths producer. You know, they're maybe trying to go for. Smith's pop, but Carl Cochran's a di- different lyricist to Morrissey, big time, different kind of voice, and it just doesn't mesh properly as an album for that reason that they don't haven't seemed to figure out what their sound is going to be. But then on the next record, Clock Comes Down the Stairs, which is just epic, 
they found they just, it just clicked you know that the, the songs were almost in a different key they found the right kind of tempo for what they were trying to write he seemed to be able to sing better his lyrics were still incredible but just not kind of feeling sorry for himself um, and then the, uh, the what came after they kind of they signed to a big label and um, they kind of got gobbled up by their majors and major label and stuff but it's interesting to hear a band the, the record before the classic record you know, mm-hmm. and and being able to hear, listen to it as a, as a fan, knowing where they're gonna where they're gonna go, how they got there. You know, what's what's the kind of the little spark within this record that kind of is a signpost of what they're about to do, and because the jump in quality between the two records is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. To go from a kind of pretty average debut album that's kind of dated, like big eighties drums, synths for no reason, guitars don't sound very good. He's not singing like he should be. There's too much lyrics to within the space of a year make like a like a a classic record so it's, they obviously were um, just worked really hard and you know fanned themselves but, uh, are, but the just vocals, are, the, are the vocals a touch overwhelming though is, is why, yeah, yeah it's high, high in the mix and he's like how much that is mixing though and how much that is his well, style I think it's him kind of saying like you know without this our music's not going to have enough weight to it so loads of vocals and I need I need to really feel sorry for myself singing these words and mm. you know and it's, it's the lyrics sometimes uh, the, I think the lyrics are great and I mm. love that he was doing different stuff with the lyrics and they're very descriptive they're literal uh, it's not literal they're lir- uh, literary literary yeah. yeah and I think that's brilliant mm. but um, I think that sometimes it makes it quite clunky and sometimes yeah, you want it to flow better and absolutely. it doesn't as a result but when there's he gets too many it, songs on the record it's yeah. like there's too so much like meh, meh but when they nail it like that song Sun is brilliant yeah. the chorus for Idea which is the first track in the album yeah, yeah. the song itself is okay but the chorus is fantastic I was trying to think of like a modern band that has that kind of a singer like the National or Tinder Stick someone who sings in that kind of range Spies here in Dublin yeah just kind of like or like if you go for that kind of like editors or some this kind of big or Interpol yeah. singing down and the baritone and that has that only works with a certain kind of sound around it and a mm-hmm. certain tempo and they obviously didn't he didn't want to be that he didn't want to be like this dancey band and I always sometimes feel as well with some of the songs in this record that the lyrics are amazing his performance is like really weighty and the music is so lightweight compared to it it doesn't sound right. Yeah, yeah. A lot like uh, uh, musically, it's re- like it's the of all the f- records we're listening to, it's the most dated sounding. Even more than Silent Running, it really oh, sounds like. I didn't know would it go that so, quite so, that far. Silent so, Running. So is so pretty well, I don't know. Like some of the drums, <laughs> the choices again. If they're if the, if that had been released, if the if the Micro Disney record had been released, just as a band entering record without a producer doing whatever he did, shining it up, it would have wouldn't have dated as much and it wouldn't mm. have been a better record there is some I just wish bands had done that in the 80s because the records that have aged the best out of the 80s are the ones that weren't made on major labels necessarily for rock bands anyway the kind of indie bands that didn't want to go for that kind of sound the drums sound like drums guitars sound like guitars it's not all pointless keyboards sucking all the texture out of the music so I don't know I, 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 I f- like Clock Comes Down the Stairs still sounds like a very 80s record but it's just a better album mm-hmm. and it you suits said, them better you said something there which is really interesting you said um, it sounds like an album before like a seminal album yeah. of but that's really funny because the Pogues you know after that was Run Sodomy and The yeah. Lash um, mm-hmm. obviously after uh, Unforgettable Fire was the Joshua yeah, 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 and yeah, I just yeah. checked there on my phone <laughs> after Christa Berg's Man on the Line uh, was into the light, yeah. which, with Lady which, in which Red, which yeah. had yeah, 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 yeah. and looking at the numbers across the uh, like it's like number one, number one, number two, number two, and wow. number, so and number twenty five in the states. You this know, is so spooky. This is this transition year just before yeah. everybody's funny, most iconic work. But, but yeah. the jump that all the other bands made isn't as big as the Micro Disney made. 
I, I don't think. I think that yeah. it's not good as they improved by like 70% between the records. Whereas the other bands got better a little bit, better songs, bigger production, whatever. But Micro Disney, when you hear the two records side by side, it's phenomenal how they went from a pretty, again, a pretty run-of-the-mill, average, early 80s sounding kind of moody pop record that, yeah. to like... The, and the next two albums, even the one after Clock Comes Down the Stairs, is another brilliant record. Yeah. Uh, has like a, a Town to Town on yeah. it and stuff. And um, I think the single they released between... The first album, the second album was Birthday Girl, which is one of like a great Irish song. It's a beautiful song. That's on, there's, that's on there's the nothing that even that sniffs yeah. that on the first album. Quality yeah. of song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dolly is a really good song. It is, but that, and that was the single. That was the single. And you imagine that as a single. By, I was, I was like, thinking that's why, that's why it was, a, do you know what I mean? It made sense because it, it flowed the best. Mm. It, didn't have the, it wasn't the best song in the album. No. And the album really took, for me, this album took, I, just, it was, I found it quite impenetrable. Yeah. I found it difficult. I was like, this is hard to get the feeling of. Yeah. And I think it might be quite a, I think it's a patchy album. Yeah, for sure. It uh, doesn't sound like living in London in the early 80s for those guys was particularly fun. <laughs> yeah, like, I you think know, the soggy, like, how, like, how bad was Cork in the early 80s they had to leave <laughs> to go to London? You soggy know? Jumper is like the perfect yeah, yeah, metaphor yeah. of Big this song. album That's the for vibe. me. Yeah. It's like, I singing just, in a squash or somewhere like yeah. I yeah. found some of the melodies and to be just gorgeous and every time I was like kind of riding the wave of like mm. oh he's doing something so nice here his voice and the just weight and like I mean that in a negative yeah, way like the absolutely. way that he sounds like he's like like in a terrible way or hung over mm. or something mm. really made me j- like he brought me crashing down to earth from the high that he had already brought me up yeah. on with the melody because it always it's pessimistic as well it is mm-hmm. and, and it, it just always makes me think of young people guys and girls living in London in the early days working to emigrating oh it's, it's a real downtime and you've got the Pogues got you two you've got Micro Disney making music like two bands based in London you know, and what it must have been like to be 21, 22, living in London at the time and clinging to this, this is the bands from home, going to the gigs and like the uh, uh, town and country club in, in, in Kentish Town or whatever and kind of with all other Irish people. And I've seen footage of Pogues gigs from the time and it just looks like the most incredible experience. Everyone's just like coming together. Mm. Oh, is a micro Disney gig kind of people kind of feel yeah. like a bit <laughs> down. But, but that's, it's like, it's, it's, they're a fantastic band. And Kyle Cochran, again, like Shane again, one of our like greatest songwriters. Lyri- yeah. Lyrically, like when yeah. he went on to form Fatima Mansions, they're an incredible band as mm. well. And they have even they have more records than Micro Disney, and they've a, another bunch of really classic albums, really brilliant, brilliant music. And he seems like a fascinating dude, and a fascinating songwriter, and fascinating lyrics, and what's going on in his head. But at the time. Here's a, here's an opportunity to make an album. What have you got to say for yourself? He doesn't mm. feel like he he's kind of figured out what he needs to say. He's kind of letting it all out. There's one yeah, song about when he's meeting, he meets a girl. She's a bit older than him. I think it's called Liberal Girl, the or Liberal something. Lover, or and something, it's yeah. like heavy, heavy. And it's then so, they break up, and yeah. and he's and it's just like, and it sounds like it's coming from him, and and that might have happened. And God, like bad times. Like bad bad vibes early eighties. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like you think of Krista Berg fans are like cruising around in their in their fancy cars and it's all Top like down. yuppie time and then you Fast have the someone like di- fa- music for different people one's a major label one's an indie like, sure. it sounds yeah, like yeah. it should be on rough trade and it sounds yeah. like maybe just Jeff, Jeff Travis signed him was like oh these can be like my Irish version of the, the Smiths the, the, the Peel, Peel Sessions they, they yeah. loved, didn't they John, John Peel, Peel loved them, them. Yeah, and yeah, it totally yeah. makes sense John, yeah. like rough trade John Peel loves them yeah, yeah, yeah. like it can't get any cooler than that any hipper but at the time it meant nothing to them because they were living in not very nice place in London and it's grim and heavy going and maybe that's they had to suffer 
But I don't know. Well, uh, we'll try our very best to pick, you know, the most essential listener of this five. It's been a very contentious and very interesting uh, rundown this time, I think. So we'll take a quick break and we'll come right back. Okay, so yeah, um, perhaps more so than usual on the show, it's nothing's really jumping out. I mean, like, what I would say is I find it, I wish the Silent Running album was an EP. I wish the Christopherberg album was an EP. Like, that would make my job so much easier here. As a result, just due to general process of elimination, I can't believe I'm saying it, but fucking you too. I have to go. You too. <laughs> I, think I cannot the best believe you've done this. Okay, so you two are your shout. They're my shout, James. I think the Pogues. Uh, listen to it. Just it's the it's the best record Irish band put out that. Even though they're an Anglo-Irish band that put out that year, and it's it's uh, essential. And if you haven't heard it before, you, you need to you need to, you need to hear it. You need to own it. I will do a joint vote between the Pogues and you too. I'm sorry. They're not, neither of them are gold, the gold standard of my bloody Valentine's Loveless, but they're still <laughs> amazing and I think incredible documents in Irish music. So, those two. Um, I'm going to go for, I think I'm going to go for you too. Um, but actually, um, yeah, I think you too probably said, I didn't, I didn't love, I didn't love a lot of the albums on this list, but I, I think the album that I, I, I I liked the best as well as you do, so that's okay. my that's my rationale. Uh, well, I have a very sincere love for Man on the Line, but I, the one thing I'll say about that to call back to Brian Ferry is that um, this is the album for me that proves that Christopher is not Brian Ferry, but he's maybe like an inch closer to Brian Ferry than I would have thought, and probably the same of everyone listening. So I do think it's worth a listen. Um, but it is, you know, it's not an iconic, um, like, touchstone of Irish music. I would have to vote for the Pogues. I just love the energy on there. It's not something I will be listening to all the time, but it's definitely the album I think I could most broadly recommend to people because there's a really cool vibe about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I think that's a fair shake-up. So we have a tie, I think, or what? Um... We have a tie between you two and the Pogues. Which so is fine. We've had that's tie. a fair draw. Yeah, that's a fair that's, draw. That's, that's exactly, that it, I concur with that, yeah. Who'd win in a fight? That's a tiebreaker. Yeah. Well, in a look, fight with anyone. Pretty much. <laughs> looking at Shane's kind of health at the moment, yeah. I think Bono would be a bit more agile than Shane. I don't know. Put it that way, you know. I don't know, so. he had his arm all messed up. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. Go on the elbow. Although Adam Clayton is ripped. <laughs> so they're both he's like Adam Crane's properly torn up for like a dude in his 50s he's sculpted really? for real I wouldn't yeah. want to take a punch off Larry Mullen either to be fair that mm. is true I'd say just ruffle his hair he'd be one of like the four I would say because historically as well he's kind of like in many ways he is the kind of the engine even Bono is the mouth yeah. but Larry's always the guy telling the Bono muscle. shut the fuck up the, <laughs> like you know kind of cigarette behind <laughs> his ears he kicks the shit out of you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I don't want to be there uh, I think that's a fair result. Um, what I would say, though, is before we wrap up, I would say that I think the Pogues should play us out simply due to James's passion on the subject, which was Boom. very Boom. admirable. But um, yeah, I mean, like a strange year, a big year in many, many ways. Can I just mention, I think it's worth bearing about just given that just before Christmas that Frank Murray died, who was uh, obviously he managed the Pogues, but not only did he manage the Pogues, he managed Tin Lizzy and indeed people at the Mighty Steph. And I know loads of people, all sorts of artists and designers and characters around town um, that had just so much love and respect for that man and mm-hmm. he really was t- up until the day that he died uh, I should put this the best way like he really believed in being an, an enabler in enabling great art and, and uh, so anyway 
Was yeah, actually, I remember I, I, I met him in my Hot Press days. I love you, man. I remember mm-hmm. uh, when the Lost Brothers played at a Leave on Helm tribute night, and I remember saying to him, I was like, they're really good. And like he, he lit up like a Christmas tree. Like He was, like, he was so wow, happy for yeah, his, for yeah, his yeah, charges. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, He was yeah. very much like, he was like, aren't they? Oh, they're great, aren't they? Yeah. And like there was just such genuine conviction about the man. So yeah, uh, absolutely. Rest in peace, Frank Murray. He was a hell of a guy. Um, but uh, thank you all for coming in today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Traveling you. back in time, 30, 32, <laughs> almost 33 years. Uh, reminder of my age there for everybody listening. And uh, yeah, so to play us out this week, uh, James, what Pogue song are we listening to? Um, oh man, uh, maybe the old triangle because I'm about to walk home in the rain and it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I live near uh, the canal. I li- yeah, I live near yeah. the canal. I okay. live near the Grand Canal, but, you know, it's still a canal. <laughs> <laughs> so this, yeah. Good call, we'll do it. Uh, my name is Dave Hanready. This has been The Encore. This has been The Revisit. We'll be back to you again soon. And this is The Pogues and The Old Triangle, the definitive version. Thank you. Sorry for the interruption. Just before we played the song by The Pogues, Kieran got Kocha Reardon from The Pogues on the phone for a quick chat. Kocha Reardon, this is uh, Kieran giving you a shout from uh, The Revisit, Headstuff's The Revisit, and um, our album of 1984 to revisit. Uh, was Red Roses for me. So um, I'm just wondering if we can have a little chat about that. How does that suit you? Go for it. I'll tell you anything I can remember, which <laughs> might not be much. So uh, it's the first album of the band, and I guess 13 tracks and six similar covers. Was it a long writing process up to that, or did it just feel like it just you know it just happened overnight? My memory of it is we rehearsed a lot, and Shane would show up to rehearsals, and he'd have bits of paper with the songs written out and he'd play guitar and sing them through to us and we'd just pile in and make them that way. Do you think there was a kind of a, a, a thought into what you were doing or was it just kind of did it feel a bit wild when you were writing the songs? A caution? Is that what is that the word you use? No, like was there a kind of... Um, did, did you feel like you were planning it? Like how you, you know, together how you wanted it to sound or... Did it just kind of, <laughs> was it a kind of just Oh a my wildness? God, yeah. I mean, say, at the time, now this is what you, you young people, <laughs> well, no, at the time, we didn't have access to all the music in the world. You, 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 you knew what you were raised with and you knew what you heard on the radio, which was, you know, a finite number of channels. And you knew what you saw on top of the pops, which was 30 minutes one day a week. So we weren't overwhelmed with music and you kind of, you were formed by the music you had access to and the music you were exposed to. You didn't get to pick and choose. But the thing now where people are, you know, they put on a waistcoat and grab a banjo and they act like they're Appalachian, but really they're from, you know, a suburb of Manchester or Galway. And... At the time, where you were from was a very definite thing, and we were very much London Irish, and Shane was completely the product of being a London Irish punk who would go out and see the Sex Pistols in the class, but then he'd go home and he'd listen to the Dubliners or the Clancy Brothers. And I, I think that's just exactly what the Pogues were, was the punk energy built on a very solid ground of kind of popped up ballads yeah there's i mean that's what i mean that's a lot of things that we were saying you know it's kind of like very punky very but uh, very traddy and i guess 
some of the, the the highlights of the album, um, apart from the, the the obvious ones, are some of the the, the covers. How how would the, how did you decide which covers to do? Like, or was it just they were the ones that you did live and they, it came together that way? Yeah, whatever would go over live. I think if if it was a trad song that we all enjoyed and that would go over well, because I mean we started in the back room of a pub in King's Cross, and if it would go over well to that audience. And if Spider could bash his head with a tea tray to it, and then it was in. Yeah, that the video from uh, from the tube is something we were mentioning earlier on when he um, he was playing percussion on his head with <laughs> a tray. Um, I think I think the one of the obvious kind of things that people would talk about the the Pogues is the kind of drinking culture. Did you feel that like, you know, was was it, was it a, a were they drunken sessions or were, was it you know pretty kind of organized in that way or, or or was it just the kind of thing where there wasn't any organization just whatever happened happened it's it's so racist it's so fucking ignorant british racism that whole idea you know every band i ever met this is growing up in london and working in london drank and you know every band had a sloppy drunk whether they were english irish american french whatever but you know, talking about 1980s Thatcher's Britain, the fact that you were Irish or you had Irish heritage and you then it was just old drunken paddies, it's fucking nauseating. Yeah, I'd say it's, it's it, it can be very easily leveled, I guess. Um, you, you came from uh, uh, quite a, a, I guess, a, a punk background as well. Maybe, you know, it was mentioned earlier on that you, you brought like a lot of the punk energy into the band where as some of the other musicians might might have brought you know maybe the trad side of things did you did you feel that that was the case or or, or again was it sort of was it you know at the time i didn't analyze any of it i thought we were a folk band because we were playing the dubliners and clancy brothers songs and i was you know that's what i used to listen to and, you know, and variations of I, I liked English folk bands as well. I like any songs about, you know, fishing, whaling, being a pirate, fighting, um, you know, big horse fairs. Songs like that are always good to listen to. And murder ballads, all that stuff. But it was, they, they wouldn't have been classified as punk in any way. I think the punk energy I bought was just being a teenager and not knowing what I was doing so it was just massive adrenaline going the whole time um, so after this was released um, there was a bit of um, a time between the next album uh, was that time spent um, just gigging and touring or was it a kind of I, I don't know I, I can't imagine what it was like you know touring at that time but was it was it mostly touring or was it kind of um, just people went off and did their own thing for a while not at all, no, tour. We had to tour, um, which was fantastic. I mean, the first two years in the band, I don't think we left London. And then suddenly, we were wanted, you know, we, we got attached to uh, a national artist, national tour. So we got to see how, you know, the real bands with record company support did it. You know, people who had tour buses and stuff. I mean, we were in a van going up and down the M1. But um, it was great to see how it was done. And we were getting a... Shane was obviously, you know, a big star within the small world. 
of the London Music Press. And like you saw the tube, you know, we got to Newcastle and do the Music Press. And we got our first European tour when the first album came out. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really don't know how the music industry works for new bands these days. But um, at the time, you'd make an album that would be you announcing your existence. And if people liked it, then everything snowballs from there. You know, you start getting media attention, you get a bit of heat. Suddenly agents and promoters are interested in you and the media are interested in you. And everything just accumulates at once. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that, you know, I guess everyone kind of talked about um, from that album was the energy, was the kind of, I guess, the, the the passion that comes across. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of humor in it as well. Some of the some of the singing, especially in stuff like Waxy Dargo, like, you know, it's it's almost it's almost comic, you know, how kind of it just sounds like a lot of fun. You know, uh, when you moved on to, yeah. you know, Rum Sodomy on the Lash and stuff like that. um you know, you're 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 now singing on some of the songs on Rum Sodomy and Lash, like I'm a Man, uh, You Don't Meet Every Day and stuff like that. Did you feel like your kind of presence in the band, you know, became, you know, stronger in that time? Or did you feel that it was a kind of thing where it was a very kind of dip, democratic, diplomatic kind of kind of procedure? That sounded very no, official. No, <laughs> I mean, we had a lot of... Go ahead. I was just saying that that sounded like a very uh, official question, didn't it? I was going to say, I mean, you used the word democratic there, and that was a big tension in the band a lot of the time, obviously, because Shane was so obviously just a gift. You know, what a writer, what a singer, what a presence. And I know that I looked to him as my leader, but and I think everyone did, which put a lot of pressure on him. And he would always say, no, you know, the band's a democracy. But, I mean, would always come up when there were interview requests because everyone wanted to talk to Shane. And Shane was the songwriter and, you know, the, the, this amazing character. And it put a lot of burden on him. You know, if you have to write the songs and do all the talking about them, but then go out and do all the work as well, you know, do all the touring and whatever put a lot of pressure on him and he and he, he didn't want all that pressure on him. He tried to spread it around but, you know, him saying we're a democracy and talk to the others in the band, you know, you the enemy isn't gonna put me or the banjo player on the front cover. So it we want he wanted it to be a democracy but, you know, reality dictated it couldn't be a democracy. Yeah, especially with a personality like that in the band. Well, um Thank you very much for for talking to us here. I really really appreciate it, and uh, we'll put this interview out with the with the podcast. And um, hopefully, I'll talk to you again soon. That's great, Kieran. I, I hope uh, people give the album a listen and that they enjoy it. it. Definitely, definitely. Thank you very much, Koch. Thanks, Kieran. A hungry feeling came me stealing and. The mice were squealing in my prison cell And the triangle went jingle jangle All along the banks of the Royal Canal I'll just start the morning 
has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. You don't own me. No one can tell you how to travel as you are. Orbitz wants to help you discover where you want to go, who you want to go with, and what you want to do when you get there. Visit orbitz.com slash pride to book your next trip. Orbitz. Travel as you are.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.